One of my favorite recent interviews was uh, a podcast between Ted Seides and Michael Mobison. Part of their conversation covered Mobison's time working within the Santa Fe Institute, a cross-disciplinary organization that studies complex adaptive systems. And I like the way that David Kelly, the founder of IDEO, talks about this idea. He compares university buildings to silos and says that problems within those silos were really good at solving, but if you think about all the space between the silos, there's problems out there too, but we don't always address them because they don't lie within someone's expertise. And so the Santa Fe Institute is is one organization that addresses that. And um, the Santa Fe Institute's focus on complex adaptive systems is, is where systems where the agents influence each other. It's things like traffic or stock markets or anything where there's a bunch of individual agents that can change the outcome. In his book, More Than You Know, Mobison wrote that in complex adaptive systems, quote, not every effect has a proportionate cause, end quote. Mobison learned about the Santa Fe Institute from Bill Miller, and it was Miller who introduced the work of Brian Arthur to Mobison. Here is what Michael told Ted Seides. So Brian was a professor at Stanford and had done this work on this concept called increasing returns. And by the way, it's much more accepted today than it was when he started working on this. But we are taught in microeconomics, and there's a lot of reason we're taught this, is that returns, marginal returns tend to migrate toward the cost of capital, right? High return on capital businesses attract competition, which drive returns down and so forth. And Brian had identified these situations, what he called increasing returns, where there was no regression toward the mean. There was actually a repulsion from the mean. The winners were winning, losers were losing. And he identified sort of the qualities and features and things like network effects, things we talk more about. And that was, you know, it was completely out there. It was completely crazy. In fact, many people in the traditional economics field frowned on it. I was listening to Mobison and Sides, and I thought, who is this Brian Arthur guy, and I wonder what he has to say. So I, I looked him up, and, and I struck gold on the Google Scholar page because most of Arthur's articles were ungated. And there was one in particular that we're going to talk about today, and that's his article in the Harvard Business Review from 1996 titled Increasing Returns in the Two Worlds of Business. What I liked about this article is that Arthur points out that we need to question Chesterton fences and, when necessary, just cut through Gordian knots. He wrote, quote, Our understanding of how markets and businesses operate was passed down to us more than a century ago by a handful of European economists. End quote. Those economists, notably Alfred Marshall, introduced the diminishing returns model. These Marshall economies were identified by bulk, were heavy on resources and light on know-how, and were, in Arthur's words, genteel. These were the years of the 1880s and 1890s. For context, in 1869, the American coasts were linked by rail. In 1876, the telephone is invented. In 1903, the Wright brothers take flight, and in 1909, the Model T rolls off the assembly line. Arthur wrote about this economic model, quote, Planters would produce coffee so long as doing so was profitable, but because the price would be squeezed down to the average cost of production, no one would make a killing, end quote. In this model, as Mobison said, returns return to the cost of capital. At the waiter's pad, 
we call this idea alpha erosion. It's this concept that if you find something that works and you do it and you get outsized returns, people are going to copy that. Nate Silver saw this when he was playing online poker. For a while, Silver said, it was really profitable and worth your time to play poker, but then it started getting harder because the players got better. Jeff Lunlow, the general manager of the World Series champion Houston Astros, said this was also true for analytics. Lunlow said that you can do something and you have an edge, but you should expect to be copied by it. Daryl Morey said the same thing about drafting players in the NBA. He said that for a while the Houston Rockets draft board was unique, but more and more people have the same draft order, and that is they're finding similar ways to extract value. Ed Thorpe told Barry Ritholtz, quote, Any edge in the market is limited, small, temporary, and quickly captured by the smartest or best-informed investors, end quote. So that's the idea we have, is that we have efficient markets. We have things where if you have an edge, someone's going to copy it, and your edge is going to be eroded down. But Arthur introduces the increasing returns world. In this model, quote, if one system gets ahead, it attracts further software developers and hardware manufacturers to adopt it, which helps it get further ahead, end quote. Remember, this was written in 1996, and as Mobison pointed out, these ideas were really unique then. Today, we call these things network effects, and it's pretty common. In fact, books have been written about it, like Alex Moad's Modern Monopolies, and he's got some good points. He describes the landscape like this, quote, Linear businesses became monopolies largely because they built economies of scale on the supply side. This allowed them to decrease their costs as they grew. Platforms dominate markets because as their networks grow, they deliver more value to their users. End quote. The best way to think about this, or the simplest, is to think about optimization or innovation. Are you in a market, or is your best model one of optimization or innovation? At the time, Arthur wrote, quote, These properties then have become the hallmarks of increasing returns, market instability, multiple potential outcomes, unpredictability, the ability to lock in a market, the possible prominence of an inferior product, and fat profits for the winner. We can apply Arthur's model, Arthur's properties, in the way that we look back at Instagram. This is hindsight bias, and so this is more explanatory than predictive, but I think it helps to wrap our minds about what we're doing. The first thing, market instability. Can the market tilt in favor of a product that gets ahead? And, and it really can. Instagram was started in 2010, right around the time when phones and networks and cameras were combining to form a Venn diagram of worthiness. Before this point, there wasn't much incentive to take and share pictures. So there's a new market that's gonna happen and there's no market leader, so there's a potential for someone to take that market. The second thing Arthur wants us to look at is multiple potential outcomes. Are there many ways that this could have happened? And there was for Instagram. It wasn't the first or even the second photo filter app that I downloaded onto my phone. In 2011, Time Magazine listed Instagram along with Camera Plus, Hipstamatic, Color Splash, and Photoshop Express as necessary apps. That same year, TechCrunch had Snapseed as its recommended photo app, so we have a lot of different players. The third thing was unpredictability. Instagram started as another check-in app. 
not continuing on this path turned out to be great for them. But it wasn't obvious what to do. It wasn't like, let's do this photo thing instead. Kevin Systrom was on vacation with his girlfriend at the time, and he said, I think we're going to switch from a check-in app to photos. And she told him, well, I don't think I'm going to post very much because my photos aren't that good. They're not as good as your friend's Greg's. And then Kevin replied to her, well, Greg uses a bunch of filter apps to make them look nice. And then she said, well, you should probably add filters. And that's how Kevin explained it on the How I Built This podcast. So it was unpredictable that Instagram would be this photo-filtered network rather than something else. The fourth thing that Arthur recommends is the ability to lock in a market. And like Alex Moad outlined, Instagram owns no inventory. They're a platform that people connect on and create a snowball effect of what Arthur calls increasing returns. The next thing was the possible prominence of an inferior product. And to some, Instagram is still an inferior product. This was especially the case early on. Kevin Systrom told Guy Raz in that same interview, quote, Those initial weeks it was trial by fire. We had to learn everything on the job, and we had so many chances to fail, but we just kept at it. We kept working. We pulled a bunch of all-nighters. The amount we learned in that first year was just crazy. It was like five years of college all in one. Before you knew it, we had overloaded our system. To be clear, there was no reason we should have succeeded. The server was down every other hour, and people just kind of forgave us. They came back, and they would share their photos. At the time, mobile networks weren't that great either, so people would blame their connection and not us which was great, end quote. This same thing happened with Twitter, if you're old enough to remember the fail whale when you tried to load a Twitter page. So we have this inferior product. We have something that isn't functioning well, but it's starting to succeed. And then the last thing that Arthur says is that there's fat profits for the winner. And via the $1 billion purchase price by Facebook, we can see that this happened to Instagram. Arthur identified all of this in 1996, and he wrote, quote, In the early days of my work on increasing returns, I was told that they were an anomaly, like some exotic particle in physics. They might exist in theory, but would be rare in practice. In fact, a major part of the economy was subject to increasing returns, high technology, end quote. In these increasing returns worlds, Arthur wrote, quote, They are heavy on know-how and light on resources, end quote. How so? Arthur describes, quote, The first disk of Windows to go out the door cost Microsoft $50 million. The second and subsequent disks cost $3, end quote. Of course, this isn't an absolute. Apple is praised for their efficient supply chain, which is martial economics, whereas their App Store and iOS ecosystem exist in the increasing returns economy. In his article, Arthur encourages leaders to identify where they are in the spectrum from optimization to innovation. For the optimization hierarchy, planning and control rule the day. For innovation, it's commando units who love to move fast and break things. This was my favorite part of Arthur's article. Quote, It's not poker, where the game is static and the players vie for a succession of pots. It is casino gambling, where part of the game is to choose which games to play, as well as playing them with skill. We can imagine the top figures in high-tech, the Gateses, the Gersters, the Groves of their industries, as milling in a large casino. Over at this table, a game is starting called Multimedia. Over at that one, a game called Web Services. In the corner is Electronic Banking. There are many such tables. You sit at one. How much to play, you ask? Three billion, the croupier replies. Who will be playing? We don't know until they show up. What are the rules? Those will emerge as the game unfolds. 
What are my odds of winning? We can't say. Do you still want to play? High-tech pursuit at this level is not for the timid. In fact, the art of playing the tables in the casino of technology is primarily a psychological one. What counts to some degree, but only to some degree, is technical expertise, deep pockets, will, and courage. Above all, the rewards go to the players who are first to make sense of the new games looming out of the technological fog, to see their shape, to cognize them. Bill Gates is not so much a wizard of technology as a wizard of precognition, of discerning the shape of the next game, end quote. Increasing return situations are quests. It's time to buckle up, buttercup. It's time to shut up or put up. It's time to dent the universe or have the world chew you up and spit you out. Arthur wrote, quote, In high tech, re-everything has become necessary because every time the quest changes, the company needs to change, end quote. Even his language is close to that of Clayton Christensen's disruption theory. Arthur continued, quote, But when the games themselves are not even fully defined, you cannot optimize. What you can do is adapt. Adaptation is what drives increasing returns businesses, not optimization. End quote. These winner-take-all increasing returns businesses are like ecosystems. It's only through healthy interaction of participants do they grow. The best companies will be like Facebook and Zynga, where the former allows the latter to grow on its back, and both benefited. Arthur wrote, quote, Dominant players in a web should allow dependent players to lock in their dependent products by piggybacking on the web's success, end quote. A less healthy example is the Apple HomePod. Aggressive discounting by Google and Amazon has planted the seeds for their ecosystems. There's no compelling reason for someone who has an iPhone to get the HomePod, unlike, say, the Apple TV, which connects to iOS Photos, iTunes Purchases, and has a remote app. I personally own the latter, but wouldn't even consider the former. It reminds me of the colonization style of computer video games I committed far too many snow days and winter afternoons to as a kid. In the game of Age of Empires or Warcraft, if someone else was going to establish a base somewhere, even the threat of it would keep me away. This is true for businesses, too. In Jerry Kaplan's book, The Startup, we see how Kaplan's attempt to create a handheld computer fits this. He wrote, quote, In a fast-growing market, what matters is your share of new machines, not existing ones, because new machines quickly come to dominate the market, end quote. Kaplan wants to be where the ecosystem is growing, not where it has died. Throughout his book, Kaplan notes that his team has to decide how to claim ground before others. He makes announcements with smiling faces, but actually building the thing is hard. He writes, quote, It's as if we jumped out of a window with the parts we needed to sew a parachute, end quote. Kaplan's goal was to create a product that led to increasing returns. He ultimately failed because larger organizations with existing ecosystems, yet inferior products, run, won the day, just as Brian Arthur points out. I think Arthur's biggest point is that there's different models. There's the optimization model for people that are making things. And Mobison points this out in his conversation with CITES. In these instances, you need to optimize. You need to find efficient things. You need to make small innovations. You need to do what Clayton Christensen writes about when he writes about how companies get disrupted. But as Christensen warns, you also need to be aware of disruption. You need to think innovatively. You need to come up with new ideas. In Arthur's words, you need to re-everything your thinking. 
Arthur's work is really interesting, and I'm glad Michael Mobison brought it up in his interview so that we could dive a little deeper into it in this episode. Thanks for listening.